Good morning. For those of you who are visiting, I am Matt Rice, one of the pastors here at Northwest. And standing to my left is a good friend, Matt Hahn. In 1999, I was on staff at a church in Apex, North Carolina. And uh, I just saw this 15-year-old guy that was just passionate about Jesus. And we sort of started hanging out together, started just doing life together. When I was growing up, I, I never was told what it looked like to be a man of God. And I've, I felt like that my role as a man of God was to, is to help other people learn that the best way I could. And Matt and I have been doing life together for 15 years. And 2006, I was really praying about starting a church called the Creek Church. And I called Matt, who was up doing his master's at Liberty Seminary, and I said, man, it would be a dream of mine to plant a church with you in Northwest Cary. And that dream came true. And we planted a church, and we were both teaching leaders at the church for five years before merging here. Last August, last August, there was a church called Awaken Church in Columbia, South Carolina. And this was in a, a revitalization situation. They had probably about 80 folks here at the church. And I actually found out about the church through a friend. And I said, Matt, I really feel like that this would be a great place for you. And in God's sovereignty and in God's great plan, that all came to fruition. And Matt's now the pastor of Awakened Church in Columbia, South Carolina. And he roots for the University of South Carolina. And we... Oh. I'll leave that one alone. Leave that one alone. But Matt is one of my best friends in the world. I am so encouraged by him. I'm blessed by him. And so he's going to come and bring the message for God's word this morning. And I know that you are going to be grateful for having him here with us. And so Matt, love you, man. Glad you're here. Here you go. Thank you. Well, Northwest Community Church, what's going on? You guys look great, sound great, and I'm really excited to be here. I wanted to start out just by thanking uh, Matt and Brian for the great opportunity to come here and preach God's word to his people. I'm truly looking forward to how the Spirit of God is going to move in our hearts and, and make us more like Jesus and more passionate about his gospel today. Uh, we've got a lot to cover, so I would like to ask you to go ahead and get your Bibles out and turn to Psalm chapter 51. Psalm chapter 51. If you don't have a hard copy of your scripture, you can whip out your iPhone. If you're a little less spiritual, you can pull out your droid and turn to Psalm chapter 51. Psalm chapter 51. I want to talk this morning about how we as believers should deal with our sin. So obviously this topic of discussion is relevant and applicable to us all because we all have sin issues, right? I mean, no one's immune to sin problems. Even if you're in Christ, we still battle against this very dangerous disease. Now, sin is an archery term, as many of you know, and it literally means missing the mark. Let me illustrate it this way. Ever since moving to Columbia, South Carolina, I'm slowly but surely becoming more and more country. Now, I know some of you out there are just utterly shocked right now because you don't view me as a country dude, but I promise I'm becoming progressively more country. I not only fish, but now I go to the gun range, okay? And check this out, Northwest Community Church. I've been to the gun range not once, but twice in the last three months, okay? Now, I got to be honest with you. When I go to the range, my one main goal is to hit the bullseye. But I have tried hundreds of times and not ever once hit the middle of that target, the bullseye. You know, as human beings, we are born into this world missing the mark of God's holiness and perfection. And consequently, all of us, regardless of your age, 
church attendance percentage or how many songs you know or how many Bible verses you know. We're born into this world as sinners in need of the grace of the gospel. And this reality stems from the very beginning phases of the book of Genesis. As many of you know, the Bible clearly explains that in the beginning, God created everything out of nothing, okay, from plants to animals, from mountains to Chick-fil-A. He created it all. The pinnacle of God's creation was mankind, okay? The Bible says in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, that God created man in his own image. This essentially means that he created you and he created me to be in a rhythmic relationship with him, to love him, adore him, and worship him with absolutely everything that we have in the context of a real personal relationship. And in the beginning, after God created Adam and Eve, things were operating perfectly. God was completely glorified by man, and man was completely fulfilled by God. Man was not running to any outside source to try and find fulfillment or satisfaction because they were getting all of that in and through their personal relationship with God. But then comes Genesis chapter 3, and as many of you know, the fall occurs. Adam and Eve chose to rebel against God's commands, and consequently, sin entered the world and created a chasm, a divide between God and man. And ever since that day, human beings struggle with sin. And, and we sin not because we're necessarily forced to do it, but we sin because by nature, that's just who we are. Let me, let me illustrate it this way. I've got three kids, okay? And yes, I know I'm on the Duggar track and I own a minivan. Okay, get off my back. That's okay. That's just what happens when you, you know, get your third kid. It's like somewhere in the Bible, right? You need to purchase a minivan. Some of you are right there with me right now and you're amening in your mind, okay? I'm 30 years old, have three beautiful daughters, and I drive a minivan. With my kids, I never have to call them into my office and say, all right, Abigail, Anna, and Sarah, I want you for a moment to take a look at this whiteboard here, and I want to coach you for the next five minutes on how to sin, all right? Of course, I don't have to do that because they are hardwired to steal and disrespect their parents and hit each other and be selfish. So again, we don't sin because we are you know, forced to do so per se, but we sin because by nature we're, we're born into it and that's all that we know how to do. Now, the big question that I want to pose this morning is how do we deal with our sin? So we all have this baggage, right? And we all carry it along with us even as believers, but how should we deal with it in a very biblical and godly way? With that said, we're going to start in Psalm 51. Before I begin in verse 1, I do want to share just some context with you real quick to set the stage. As many of you know, David is the author of this psalm. David was a popular musician, uh, hymnist, and warrior back in his day. And as a matter of fact, the Bible says that he was a man after God's own heart. Now, even though God deemed him a man after his own heart, he still struggled in a very real way with sin, and we see that in the Old Testament, as many of you know, David committed adultery against another man's wife, and then he committed murder against that woman's husband, and then he lied about everything to cover it up. And after he fell into that very serious transgression, a very dear brother of his named Nathan approached him and said, David, you are in sin right now, and you need to repent. By the way, this is a side note, but you guys will truly know who loves you in your life based upon who is willing to call you out when you step out of line. Now, we live in a culture today that, that really just walks on eggshells. 
everywhere I feel like. And you know, we're, we're thinking, well, if I call him out, even though he's my friend or my brother, then he's not going to like me anymore. And, and then he might talk about me, you know, in, a, in an evil way. And he might defriend me on Facebook and then my life's over. And we, we sometimes have a hard time confronting people when they step out of line. In this case, Nathan was bold enough to say, you know what, because I care about David's joy and because I'm so concerned with the glory of God in his life, I'm going to take a step out of my comfort zone and I'm going to approach my friend David and tell him that he needs to repent for his joy and for the glory of God. And that's what Nathan did. And David, by God's grace, received that rebuke in a very healthy way. So Psalm 51 was written as a response to Nathan's rebuke. So with all that said, why don't you guys join with me? We're going to begin in verse 1, and we're going to look at four steps that we can follow after we succumb to sin as believers. So pick up with me. Beginning in verse 1, David says this. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Now, notice here that David is recalling the character of God. He first remembers about the love of God. Jesus Christ actually paints us a beautiful picture of what God's love is like in Luke chapter 15. He shares a parable, which was essentially a story to communicate a big idea, about a daddy and his two sons. And the youngest son was, a, was the rebellious son of the two. He was the one who always had a difficult time obeying his parents and following all the rules and doing his chores and things like that. And one day, the younger son, if you will, was sitting in his room and said, you know what, I've had enough of my daddy's rules. I hate living here. The food really, really stinks. And I can never go out with my friends. My life is boring, so I'm just going to run away. So this younger son approaches the father and says, Dad, I want my share of the inheritance and I want to leave your home because honestly, you're a terrible dad and I want out and I want out right now. Now back then in biblical times, it wasn't uncommon for someone to ask for the inheritance early, but in this particular situation, the younger son is just being completely disrespectful to his father. For a reason unknown to us, the dad obliges, he agrees to his son's proposal. And the text says in Luke chapter 15 that the son ran away to a very far off country and squandered everything on prostitutes and other evil activities. It would be akin to a teenager leaving his father's house in modern day times and going to Vegas to spend his money on everything ungodly. Eventually, when the son is in that far-off country, he, he, he comes to his senses, the Bible says. He loses all of his money. Again, he just squanders it. He's, he's spending some time with pigs in a pigsty, and he's eating the same food that the, the pigs would eat. And he scratches his head for a moment, and he says, you know what? My father's hired servants have a much better life than I do right now. What in the world am I doing? I need to go back home and not ask my dad for sonship back because I know that that's just long and gone. I should rather look at my dad and say, dad, you know what? I know I rebelled against you. I know I disrespected you. And I understand that you can't take me back as your son, but can I just be a servant of yours? Well, the younger son agrees to his idea, and he, he starts a long road trip back home. Probably took him a couple days. And he's reciting as he's going home his speech that he's going to give to his dad. Some of you kids do that. You know, when you get in trouble, you, you look in the mirror, and you're like, you're practicing this speech to ask for forgiveness to, to your mom or to your dad. That's what the son's doing on his way home. And as he gets closer to the home, and he's about 100 miles, excuse me, 100 miles, 100 yards away or so, the father sees him in the distance. 
The dad was waiting on the porch. I think that's awesome. And instead of running inside and getting a shotgun or getting his whip or belt, he actually takes a step off of the porch and begins to run after the younger son. And and when they get close to each other, the, the younger son immediately goes into that speech that he was rehearsing. Dad, dad, I know that you're really mad at me and you're angry right now. I obviously rebelled against your commands and I disrespected you and I squandered all of my inheritance money. Can I please just be one of your hired servants? And the father looks at the son, interrupts him in the middle of his speech and gives him a giant hug and showers him with kisses. And then he demands his servants to prepare a party for his younger son. And they celebrate the arrival of their younger rebellious son. The point of the story is this, God's love, the father's love, was not based on the younger son's performance. And after we sin, it's of paramount importance for us to remember that even when we rebel against God, turn our back on him and say, God, my way is better than your way. You don't know what you're talking about. I know what I'm talking about. His love always remains. It never, ever fails. So he recalls his love, but he also remembers his mercy. I've heard one theologian define mercy as the act of God withholding from us what we rightfully deserve. Let me illustrate it this way. I'm not a speed demon by any means by some of you out there. You need to repent of your speeding ways. But sometimes, um, tough crowd, that's okay. Sometimes I, I you know, I, I got a lead foot when, when I'm talking to my wife on the phone. It doesn't happen often, but if we're planning something, you know, maybe that night, perhaps it's a date or something like that, I, I just forget about how fast I'm going. And that's what happened about five years ago or so. I was working at the creek at the time, as Matt alluded to. I was working three jobs, you know. I mean, I was just working hard, and I was ready for the weekend, and I was ready for this date with my really godly and gorgeous wife, Erica, okay. So I call her up on the phone. It's about 5 p.m., and I'm flying down the highway, and we're talking, and all of a sudden I see the blue lights in the background, and immediately my heart just sinks to the floor, I'm like, oh my goodness, I can't afford $300 right now. This is not going to be good. So I hang up the phone with Erica, and the police officer, you know, comes over to my Chevy S10 truck and um, roll down my window. You know, I keep my hands on the steering wheel because that's what my brother always taught me. He's like a king at getting out of tickets. So he always told me, Matt, just keep your hands on the wheel and say yes, sir, like over and over again. So that's what I tried to do. So the police officer begins to talk to me. He says, sir or young man, why were you, why were you speeding? And I said, honestly, officer, my mind wasn't really thinking about how fast I was going. I was on the phone with my really godly and gorgeous wife, okay? And we were talking about what we were going to do tonight, whether we were going to go to like Ruth's Chris or Olive Garden or whatever. Um, And I just wasn't paying attention to the fact that I was going 85 in a 55, all right? And then I said, and by the way, officer, we just moved here from Virginia and, uh, I'm going to be a pastor. Throughout the pastor card, some of you guys know what I'm talking about. We utilize this card in very strategic ways when we have to get something that we want to get. So, you know, I throw out the pastor card and I say, yeah, I'm a pastor, you know, a new church. Uh, and he said, what church? And I said, the Creek Church. And he was like, okay, I've never heard about that church before. And I'm like, well, it's actually a church plant from Apex Baptist Church. And he perked up really really nicely. And he said, who's the pastor of Apex Baptist Church? And I said, loud and proud, Phil Qualls. And he said, have a nice day, sir. Woo! 
That police officer on that really hot July afternoon showed me mercy. Okay, he withheld from me what I rightfully deserved. After David committed adultery, murder, and then lied about everything, he first and foremost recalls and remembers the character of God, namely God's love and his mercy. So that's step number one. Let's continue in the text. By the way, we're going to treat this text, you've probably already um, come to this realization, like you guys treat rush hour on I-40. Okay, we're going to hit the gas for one minute, then we're going to hit the brakes for five and talk, and we hit the gas, and we're hit the brakes, and just work our way um, methodically through this so that we can see exactly what God wants us to see. Verse 2, let's continue. David says, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Notice the personal pronoun that he uses there. For I know my transgressions. And my sin is ever before me. Not my brothers, not my neighbors, but my sin. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Now take note here, Northwest, that David is not blaming anyone for his sin. He's not blaming his mama or his papa or his context, or his situations, but he is blaming himself. You know, as human beings, I feel like we have this propensity or this natural tendency to major on other people's sins and minor on our own. At least that's me. Did you see Susie the other night? Oh my goodness, I can't believe that she did that. She's obviously not spiritual. She obviously has sin problems. I'm so glad I'm not Susie because if I was, I wouldn't be godly. I wouldn't be right with God. And we, we have this tendency to see the speck in someone else's eye and turn a blind eye to the plank in our own. Jesus actually addresses this in Matthew chapter 7. Verses three through five, he says, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own? You, you hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. In Psalm chapter 51, David is admitting to the plank in his own eye. And like David, everyone struggles with their own plank. From Billy Graham to Brian Eisner, from Mother Teresa to Matt Rice, we all struggle. Now, I remember I was at the gym not too long ago. I was playing basketball at Gold's, just trying to develop some relationships with some guys in Columbia. And we were in an intense game of basketball. And I don't know if any of you have seen older men really compete at a high level, but sometimes it gets crazy and comical. Okay, I mean, people were throwing balls against the floor, yelling at each other, complaining, that's a foul. No, that's not a foul. That's a travel. you you got to be kidding me. You know, just going back and forth. I mean, each team really wants to win the game. To make a long story short, the game ends, and I am exhausted, just wiped out, because I haven't played basketball like that in years. So I'm sitting against the wall there at Gold's, and one of my teammates comes, and he sits next to me, and we just begin small talking back and forth. And then he asked me the question, what do you do for a living? It's like the one question us guys always ask each other because we, have, we don't really know any other questions to ask. So, well, what do you do for a living, you know? And then I said, well, I'm actually, and I use the term actually because everyone's always really surprised when they hear I'm a pastor. I said, I'm actually a pastor. And when he heard that, his face turned blue. He went, oh, oh you're a pastor. 
oh my goodness, I can't believe I dropped that bomb and that bomb and that bomb. I can't, you didn't tell me you were a pastor, Matt, and I've been just cursing over and over again. I can't believe you're a pastor. Are you serious? Yeah, I'm a pastor. Oh my goodness, Matt, please forgive me. He probably said, please forgive me at least 12 times within a three minute span, okay? And after his, you know, forgiveness speech, I looked at him and I said, bro, you might struggle with dirty language, but I've got a host of sinful struggles that I'm working through right now. The Bible says in 1 John chapter 1, verse 8, if we claim to be without sin, in other words, if we have the audacity to say, I have spiritually arrived and I don't struggle with my own plank, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. The point is crystal clear. We all struggle in battle with sin. You see, we're perfect positionally in Christ. Okay, nothing can change that. If you know Jesus today, you are in the palm of God's hand. And when he sees you, he sees you through the lens of his son, Jesus, and his righteousness. So we're perfect positionally, but we're not perfect practically. On a daily basis, we all succumb to sin and have our shortcomings. A couple weeks ago, my wife and I were vacationing in Boise, Idaho. Now, initially, when I you know, heard that my boy was getting married in Boise and that he was asking me to do his wedding, I really wasn't that excited because just to call a spade a spade, when I think of Boise, I think of little brown potatoes, and that's it, okay? I don't, I don't see it as a hopping city or a fun city. But when we arrived, I realized that the city had so much to offer. This is a beautiful place. Downtown is really nice. And Erica and I really enjoyed our time there. We were away from the kids. Hallelujah. Now, don't get me wrong. We love our kids, okay? And you, but, but as many of you married folk know, I mean, it's healthy to get away just to have some one-on-one time. So we're going out to eat. We're mountain biking. We're just having a grand old time in Boise, Idaho. And then the last day, we decide, we decide to go tubing. And uh, now, here's what you need to know about me, okay? I am not an adventurous guy, all right? Now, go ahead. Take my man card. That's fine. You, just take it right now. I'm just not an adventurous guy. I'd rather play basketball or football or stuff like that. But uh, my wife looked at me and she said, Matt, I think it would be really nice for us to take a stroll down the river. Now, when I think of tubing, I think of like a lazy river, you know. And I, I'm, I'm looking into my wife's beautiful green eyes. And we're talking about the future and growing old together and all that good stuff. And uh, that, that's what I think of. Now, my, um, my problem with you know, water sports and adventure types of activities stems from something that happened to me a couple years ago. I went whitewater rafting with a group from the creek, and within minutes, down the river, okay, my guide, now just in case you're a little slow this morning, the guide is called to guide you down the river. So just remember that, okay? My guide flipped out of the boat. So all of a sudden, I'm in this class five rapid, just working it out, you know, and all of a sudden I see my guide up in the air just flying. Oh, what are we doing? And I'm in, you know, kind of just in the middle of the boat paddling the air. My boys make fun of me about this all the time. Because I don't want to fall out. I'm scared to death. Ever since that experience, I didn't want anything to do with water sports. But again, tubing, according to my wife's perspective, seemed like a fun and jolly ride. Well, that was not the case, Northwest Community Church. So we, we start going down the river, and uh, all of a sudden I see a rapid 
And I look at Erica, who's not beside me. We're not looking into each other's eyes, you know, dreaming about the future. She's behind me because we're, we're having to work this thing out. And I'm like, Erica, you did not tell me about any rapids. I didn't pay $36 to endure rapids in a little tube, all right? So, I mean, I'm kind of freaking out at this time. She's behind me, and I'm going into the rapid, and I hit it hard, and the river shoots me to the right side of the river, Okay? And all of a sudden, I wipe the, you know, I wipe the, the water off my face, and then I, I look ahead, and I see hundreds of tree branches just sticking out from the side of the bank. And I look back at Erica, and everyone's in the middle of the river. And Erica's like, what are you doing over there? And I'm like, I don't know what I'm doing over here. The river shot me that way, right? So what do I do? I begin paddling as fast as possible. I'm like, you know, doing that tubing paddle, you know, however it goes. And I'm trying to get back to the middle of the river and I'm trying as hard as I can to make a long story short, it just didn't work. And within seconds, I'm hitting all those tree limbs. You know, it's hitting my face and my, my body and it's just not a good scene. Here's the point. I tried as hard as I possibly could to get back into the middle of that river paddled as fast as possible, but I failed. Such is the Christian life, right? God has called us, every single one of you, to paddle as hard as you possibly can to be like Jesus and reflect his character and honor him both in public and in private. But at times, we will fall. And in light of this reality, we we must be like David and pray the same prayer that he prayed in Psalm 51. Against you and you alone have I sinned. So this is step number two. We must admit that we have a sin problem. And we must be both honest and specific about our sin. David continues in verse 6. And he says, Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me, Lord, a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Now, for a moment, I want you guys to picture God's grace and forgiveness like one giant fountain that flows 24-7, 365 days out of the year. And every day, God has called us and commanded us as Christians to run under that fountain for cleansing. So at 8.32 a.m., when you arrive at work, you're running under that fountain, and you're saying, God, forgive me for being short with my wife and kids. That wasn't of you. And then at 12.45 p.m. on our lunch break, we're running under that beautiful big fountain. We're saying, Lord, forgive me for complaining about my job. I know that your word says in Philippians that I am to do everything without complaining or arguing. Lord, wash me, cleanse me, create in me a clean heart, oh God. And then before we go to sleep at 10 p.m. or 11.55 p.m. for all you night owls out there, we're running under the fountain of God's forgiveness and asking him to cleanse us. One of my favorite verses in the entire Bible comes from Lamentations chapter 3, verses 21 through 23. And if you know anything about the book of Lamentations, you know that Jeremiah wrote it. And Jeremiah was a very real man 
who had his own struggles. He was a prophet who preached the truth of God's word, but he struggled with depression and sin. And after laying some of his cards on the table in the earlier parts of Lamentations, he arrives in chapter 3, verses 21 through 23, and he says these words. He says, but this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord, give me that word, never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Now before I continue preaching, I want you just to take a second right where you are in your seat and marinate on the beauty of that truth. His love never ceases. His mercy never comes to an end. This is why we sing. This is why we shout. This is why we dance. This is why we smile. This is why we gather. His love never ceases. His mercy never comes to an end. Never. Now, I've got to be honest with you. My love ceases to exist at times. And my mercy comes to an end. But not the God of the Bibles. His love never ceases. His mercy never comes to an end. Some of you really need to hear that this morning. All of us need to hear it, but some of you really, really need to take this in. Because you are erroneously assuming that God doesn't love you anymore because of what you have done against him. And that is not the case. His love never ceases, Northwest Community Church. His mercy never comes to an end. So the fountain of God's grace and forgiveness is filled up every day with just enough water to cleanse you from every single one of your sins. Therefore, you don't need to delay in running under his fountain. As the author of Hebrews says, you can approach the throne room of grace with boldness. You can put an end to all of your wasted efforts of trying to clean yourself up and just run under the fountain and let the fountain do his thing for his glory and your joy. The Bible says in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, I know what some of you are thinking right now. At least I think I do. You're like, I don't really need to run under God's fountain of grace and forgiveness because I like what I'm doing. Sin is fun and it's thrilling. And if I want true happiness and satisfaction, then I need to continue on in my sin. You might not intellectually affirm that, if you will, but your actions speak otherwise. Let me ask you a question. And I'm asking this question to myself, too, because I feel like I fall into that camp sometimes. How many, um, how many hairs on your head right now? Some of you are like, zero, Matt. Thanks for reminding me that I'm bald. Just started taking Rogaine. All right, I'm not talking to you. For those of you who have hair, how many hairs are on your head? You have no idea, right? God knows. The Bible says that he has numbered every single one of your hairs. Here's the point. God knows you better than you know yourself. You might think that you can avoid that fountain to receive true joy, satisfaction, and fulfillment. You might think that sin is your outlet 
for true happiness, but God as the author of your life knows that if you truly want to experience him in life on this side of eternity, you must consistently run under the fountain of his grace and forgiveness. His love never ceases. His mercy never comes to an end. So that's step number three. We must run under the fountain of God's grace and forgiveness. David continues in verse 11. We'll wrap things up. He says, cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore, circle that word restore if you have a pen. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Now, one of the reasons why sin is, is so dangerous is, it be, is because it saps us from joy. Just like eating, you know, too much sugar can sap your energy from your physical life, sin can sap the joy from your spiritual life. Whether you realize it or not this morning, the reason why some of us can't get really excited about Jesus and can't sing the songs with passion and, and, and aren't growing in our Christian life and are at a standstill. Church is a hobby. It's, it's not something that we long for. Reading the Bible is a chore. Um, praying to God is just, you know, whatever. The reason why that's the case in some of our lives is because we are harboring unconfessed sin in our hearts. Now, you might be like right now, Matt, you just don't know what I've done. You don't know the sin that I'm carrying in my heart. I, I don't think restoration is possible. I don't think God's forgiveness is possible. I mean, again, Matt, you don't know who I am. You're just some guest speaker who came in today. And you don't know me, Matt. What you're talking about isn't possible for me. I'm just too far away from God's restorative work and his forgiveness. I'll give you that. First part, I might not know you. And I might not know what you have done against God. I might not know how many times you've broken your vows against God. But I know this. I know what Christ has done for every single one of you. And I know that over 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ, the sinless one, gave up his life on an old rugged cross so that you could be forgiven of all of your sins, regardless of what you've done. Listen to me. If he can restore David's heart, he can restore your heart today. If he can cleanse David from his sin, he can cleanse you from your sin today. You know, there's a story in the New Testament about an adulterous woman who was brought before Jesus Christ. I believe it's in John chapter 8. And the religious leaders of Jesus' day had the audacity to, to literally grab this woman and, and take her, like carry her, over to where Jesus was, was sitting. The text says that he was sitting down perhaps on a bench. When the religious leaders brought this woman before her, they immediately started talking to Jesus. And they said, Jesus, according to my interpretation of the law, this woman deserves to be stoned. Will you give me permission to, to murder her? And after listening to the religious leader's arrogant rant, the text says that Jesus Christ stood up from his bench. And then he, he wrote something in the ground. 
We don't know exactly what it was. The text isn't explicit, but he wrote something. And then he looked at these boastful pastors and elders, Bible teachers, seminarians. And he said, if one of you is without sin, you be the first to cast the stone. And then they all looked at each other. They dropped their stones and they left the presence of Jesus. And once they left the presence of Jesus, Christ immediately engaged the adulterous woman. And he looked into her eyes and with eyes beaming with grace, love, forgiveness, and compassion, he asked the woman a question. And he says, where are your condemners? And probably with her head down and her shoulders shrugged over like this because at this point she is humiliated, right? Put yourself in her shoes. It's humiliated. She says, nowhere. And then Jesus lifts up her chin, wipes away the tears from her eyes, and says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. If Christ can cleanse her heart and get her back on the right track, he can cleanse your heart today and get you back on the right track. Won't you pray the same prayer that David prayed in Psalm 51? Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me and restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Won't you pray that? Let me pray for you. Lord, we love you and we thank you for your grace goodness, kindness, mercy, and love. Lord, the truth in Lamentations chapter 3 is just coming back to my mind, and it's amazing. Your, your love never ceases. Your mercy never comes to an end. May we bask in that truth right now as we sing this last song. And may we sing from the top of our lungs to glorify you, the one who is the fountain, the one whose mercies flow over the mountaintops. Lord, I pray for the person right now who thinks they're just too far away from you to be loved, be shown compassion. I pray that you will teach them that is not the case this morning, that your love is there, that your mercy is there, that you desire to cleanse them from the inside out. Lord, I pray that you will save people here today. I pray that you will bring new life and change. Lord, we glory in you. We ask this prayer in Jesus' mighty name.